Get in this fight. Get in this fight. Get in this fight. Get in this fight. seriously can't have my headphones on while you're playing that, so do not play that tomorrow. If you do, I'll just stop. So don't play that tomorrow. I can't. This is hell. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is Hell, your daily, completely listener-supported source of agita. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How's your week going so far? And I just want to point out that Elizabeth Warren thing, it's not that it's her. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. It, it causes an issue in my hearing, and it... It's just annoying as hell. So I can't listen to that again. It's like nails on a chalkboard. I can't use it for the rest of the week. No. Tomorrow. You can't use it tomorrow. You can't ever use that again, dude. I can't put on my headphones while that's on. It's okay. Just, it hurts my brain. Yeah, I feel you. How's your week going? Uh, it's good. Uh, we were here last night, me and Theron, working on... Uh, in, we tested out the new soundboard that we bought. Uh, it's actually for the radio, which is good because this is a radio show. And uh, the show is about to sound way better as soon as we get this thing put in and get rack ears is bought. Uh, but yeah, it's a new, slightly better sounding era for this as hell. So what did you do? Did you unplug the old board and plug in the new board and then try it? And then you replugged in the old board? Uh, yeah, because we haven't inst- we, have, we haven't plugged everything back into that new board. Oh, I see. Uh, so it's just it, we're going to get it up at some point. Uh, but yeah, it's sounding great. And uh, thank you to everyone who supported the show on Patreon. We we're able to uh, get a good deal on a used radio mixing board and uh, everything is going to sound a lot better. And thanks to our engineer Theron Hummiston, none of this would be possible if it wasn't for him. He, uh, so thank he, you much. And if, if anyone knows Theron, he's very uh, Midwestern uh, taciturn. Uh, or he's a little, you know, uh, stone-faced. And uh, he just said, I'm over the moon. <laughs> about the board. He was, really, he was the happiest I've ever seen him. It was really funny. It was really funny. Uh, his North or South Dakotan ways. Well, which difference does it make anyway? Today, the bit tyrants are controlling the new economy of smart devices and platforms like the robber barons dominated the railroads during the Gilded Age of the 19th century. They used network effects to get as many of us to depend upon their new service and then exploit that dependence as any common drug dealer would do. Once they have us locked in, it becomes difficult to leave their platform for another, even one a far better competitor that is far less intrusive in our private lives comes along, leaving can be a real challenge. Have you ever tried to switch over from using an Android phone to an Apple device? I know I haven't because I don't own a cell phone, but as our guest points out, it's an enormous headache requiring the movement of tons of personal data like music and pictures, rechanging many settings and recognizing that some apps are only available on one smartphone platform or must be repurchased. This creates a barrier to entry known as lock-in where users face real costs to switching. But that's not the only barrier to entry. The massive size of tech giants is a monstrous obstacle for anyone else trying to break into the market with new innovations. Yes, the dominance of big tech is actually slowing an obstacle to innovation. We'll learn everything that is wrong with Silicon Valley's power in a few when we have the return of economist Rob Larson, author of Bit Tyrant, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Rob was on This Is Hell back in June 2018 to talk about his then just published book, Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. Rob is a professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State. Follow Rob on Twitter at Ironic Professor, and his Twitter bio says, steal from the rich and drink to the poor. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell. And if you could try to keep them short, because we're getting a lot of them. uh, What is your startup doing? So what does this startup do? What does this startup do? Yeah, you're pitching me a startup. What does this startup do? All right, so this week's question from hell, you are pitching us a startup. What does this startup do? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 
the book we're featuring on today's show, Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following Rob. Again, our question from hell for this week is, what does this startup you're pitching us do? What does this startup do? Leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page, email it to us, or direct message it to us via Twitter. This is not the media. This is hell. So today is a day when people are voting on lots of state primaries across the United States in the very undemocratic process to determine who the two private parties will decide will represent their parties and their moneyed masters' best interests in November. Yeah, that's the state of democracy in the United States. The media calls today something that I cannot say because it makes me gag each time I do. The media's name relates to the biggest single sporting event in the United States every year and one of the biggest each year around the world. Of course, framing democracy as a sporting event leads to horse race style analysis and reporting on the election, which seems to be what the media wants to do rather than actually discuss policy, you know, the reasons that you would vote for one candidate over the other. Sure, they'll discuss who is most likely to win and which demographic votes for which candidate, but when it comes to policy, they display a half-assed concern for the issues, then move back to all the trivia that will not matter when whoever becomes president becomes president which is why we keep hearing the same questions over and over again when it comes to policy. Everyone asks Bernie Sanders, how are you going to pay for fill in the blank? It's almost as if we are not getting the answer. And as the answer is posted at Sanders' campaign website, you can read it all there. So why do we not have a sense of how, for instance, Medicare for All will be funded? Because TV reporters ask a question, expect a full answer on a huge policy in less than 15 seconds, then interrupt asking the same question again, begging for a response that fits into a soundbite, while Sanders is in mid-sentence. So why don't we ever get the full answer from Sanders? It's simple. The media doesn't have time for the full answer. They don't want the full answer. They don't want to have discussion on policy. They only have time to cover the kind of stuff that fits into small packages between commercials. And that stuff is all the trivia, all the easy, dumbed-down idiocy they're trying to push off on the public as news. Sadly... We have actual news about the primaries this evening, and it ain't good. This is how was the first media outlet in the United States to do interviews with the investigative reporter Greg Pallast, who broke the news about 57,000 votes being vetted from the Florida totals in the Bore, <laughs> in the Bush-Gore, though it was boring, Bush-Gore presidential matchup back in 2000. Greg busted the state of Georgia for suppressing votes, and he has a long track record of fighting voter suppression across the United States. Last night in a post headlined, Will California Steal 553,000 Votes from Bernie Sanders? Greg writes, in February, California mailed 3.7 million primary ballots that, to the astonishment of many who received them, excluded the presidential candidates. These ballots do have candidates for all the primary races, including for Congress, but not the race for president. Within this mountain of primary ballots, less the lies the potential to cripple Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign, the favored candidate, among independent party voters. And at last tracking was at over 80% in California. While Californians, including independent voters, vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, according to Greg, in general elections, 5.3 million Golden State voters register NPP, that is, with no party preference. Those 5 million no party preference independents legally have the right to vote in the Democratic primary, but the Democratic Party has created an inscrutable obstacle course for them to do so. And I wonder why. Who are the, who would they vote for? The people have no party preference. Who would they vote for in the Democratic Party? Last autumn, all 5 million NPP uh, voters were mailed a postcard allowing them to request a ballot with the Democratic Party presidential choices. Greg reports, however, as many states have found out, postcards with voter information largely look like junk mail and get thrown out. In, if the independents don't respond to the postcards, they get a ballot without presidential choices. But they have one more chance to vote for a candidate in the primaries at the ballot box. At the polling station, though, things remain confusing. According to rules set by the Democratic National Party, the independent voters have to bring in their NPP ballot to the polling station and request to exchange it for a crossover Democratic ballot which lists the candidates. This doesn't seem complicated at all. However, if the voter fails to ask for the crossover ballot by its specific name, the poll worker is barred from suggesting it and they won't receive it. Poll worker Jeanne Abreu 
told me, or told Greg Palast about this disaster back in uh, 2016. She said, quote, if this NPP voter did not specifically ask for a Democratic crossover ballot, they were given an official NPP ballot, which did not list presidential candidates. So that's what Greg, Greg Palast is reporting. While watching tonight's sporting event, remember two things. One, this is not how a democracy should work. And two, this is not necessary. We do not have to have elections that lead to giving power to those who do not represent who we are. We can do much better than this. In fact, it's hard to do worse and, it, and still have something that can vaguely be called democracy. Ask yourself tonight, can we do better? And then ask yourself, why isn't the lack of democracy in this system, a democracy controlled by two private parties of who most of us do not belong to, why do we tolerate this? Why do we allow this to persist? And then ask yourself one last question. Why isn't the undemocratic nature of this process being talked about during the analysis of tonight's primaries? Once you answer those questions, you will come to the realization yet again that this is no democracy. That this is hell. Alex, do we have time for email or should we just get to Rob? Oh, we're good for Rob. Alrighty, let me move the email aside for a second. And we got some great emails this week. Uh, yeah, we got some really fantastic emails this week. So I'll make sure that we try to uh, share those with you a little bit later on today's show. Coming up, we are living under the tyranny of big tech and the platform economy. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is... What does this startup do that you are pitching us? What does this startup do? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question gets the book we are about to discuss. Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Big tech has attained an immense amount of control over our lives in a very very short time. Although we think theirs is a success built on invention and innovation, the devices and platforms were not the doings of the supposed geniuses behind big tech. As their power and market share continues to grow unchecked, the makers of new smart devices and coders of platforms will have more and more domination of the market and us. Here to take us on a tour of the powers that be in Silicon Valley and what it means for our future as well as our present. Returning to this is Hell, economist Rob Larson, author of Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Rob. Hi, Chuck. Good morning. Rob was on This Is Hell back in June 2018 to talk about his then just published book, Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. Follow Rob on Twitter at Ironic Professor, and I love your Twitter bio that states, steal from the rich and drink to the poor, because that's what we do every week here on This Is Hell. On Fridays, we do most of the drinking, though. So you write that, uh, let me start by saying I use all these corporation services constantly. This book was written on Apple devices using Microsoft Word software, employing an enormous number of Google searches with some of the research material purchased from Amazon affiliates. And I will irritate my friends by promoting it on Facebook. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking to depression and contemporary culture and literature scholar Mikkel Krauss-Franzen, author of Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. I asked Mikkel if all these devices and platforms are so bad for us, why do we voluntarily use them? Is the problem that we choose to use these devices, we choose to use these platforms that are harmful to society. Mikkel argued we can no longer choose to use these technologies or platforms that we have become so dependent upon them. Our choice has been negated. In your opinion, to what degree do we have the choice to use or not use devices and platforms? To what extent can we simply refuse to participate in the social industry and not choose to use a smartphone or Windows or anything Apple? <laughs> yeah, man. Well, to me, I mean, part of the rise of these companies to their incredible scale today is that they are providing, you know, services that uh, satisfy real needs and provide legitimate services. I mean, you know, uh, your listeners are old enough to have been Internet users in the 90s. They remember what searching the web used to be like. It wasn't such a uh, straightforward process before we had the uh, network effects of Google. And many of us in America, it's a very 
dispersed, broad country and people move a lot, like there are many of us have a lot of friends who wouldn't be uh, in touch with very regularly if it wasn't for our goofy social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and such. Uh, so to me, all of these products provide a, all the, and these services are very useful. I think the big issue is, though, for the reasons we talk about in the first chapter of the book, uh, these network, these uh, markets that provide these services tend to be monopolized or oligopolized with maybe just two dominant firms very quickly because of that networked nature of the uh, markets themselves. You know, when your market's providing a service of connecting people, like through cell phone service, for example, those markets have a weird characteristic where the service gains value as more people use it. You know, so when people get phones and join the phone network, that makes your phone in your pocket slightly more valuable because there's now more parties that you could potentially reach than you could before. And so we call this the network effect in economics, these communications and information-based markets, whether it's cell phone service or social media or online video with YouTube, uh, because people are attracted by the volume of users themselves and want to get on platforms that already have a large number of users that let them connect to the most people or share their video with the most folks or write their application for an operating system that's the most widely used. For that reason, these markets tend to end up being monopolized very quickly. I remember uh, the uh, conservative economist uh, magazine out of the UK, they described some of these industries as out-of-the-box monopolies, which I thought was very evocative and kind of a big concession for a pro-business magazine like that. So to me, as I say in, the, in that very first uh, page of the book that you quoted, using these products is difficult to avoid. Again, if you want to consume online video uh, or take advantage of any aspect of online retail, it's tough to get away from those big five tech platforms that I have a chapter on uh, in the book. So network effects, are those something that were, are network uh, effects caused by technology? Was this innovation in a business model caused by the innovation in technology? Could have we had network effects or did we have network effects before the internet in other ways that we might not recognize? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, and that is one of the weird things about economics. You know, it's like physics. You may look at uh, two very different economic contexts, but if the characteristics are similar in a market, you'll see very similar market outcomes, even as the technology changes so much to be almost unrecognizable. So the classic case for network effects uh, in the analog era would be AT&T, of course, right? AT&T through almost the entirety of the 20th century. AT&T was our national phone service monopolist. And some of your listeners will be a little too young to remember this, but back in the landline era, before you had a supercomputer that can launch the space shuttle in your pocket or purse, back then your household had a phone connected you know, to a landline to the wall, and in those days, AT&T had a full-on nationwide local and long-distance phone service monopoly because of the network effects, right? Uh, in the very early days of that market, you had small, you know, regional phone networks, but they had different technical standards. You couldn't call someone on a different phone network than the one your phone was connected to. So in network effects, there's a big drive for uh, like a uniform standard because that way the maximum number of parties can interconnect, their equipment will be compatible. You know? And again, we see this the most in communication and information-based markets. So AT&T ends up having this um, a nationwide monopoly because of that network effect. Okay, then in 1982, we break AT&T apart and now it's just a cell service, you know, cell carrier oligopolist. But now with uh, these online platforms, even though the technology is gone so far and our slick new galaxy and iphones can do so so much compared to those old uh, copper wire landline phones it's the same economic pattern and so we end up with monopolies now in our fancy yes information uh uh, age and innovation-driven economy it's the same economic forces though that led at&t to be the phone company as it was referred to by americans for decades through our uh, u.s golden age so it's a long-running pattern and for those of you who do not know it, the, uh, what AT&T did was they, you didn't own your phone. AT&T owned your phone. You had to rent your phone from AT&T. And if you change your phone number, you had to bring that phone back to AT&T to get your deposit back. That's how much of a monopoly they had. If network effects cause monopolies, Rob, then why? Why or how? How can we stop 
that kind of process? Can we in some way, because look, you just talked about AT&T and their monopoly was broken up, but now here we are back at the exact same position when it comes to telecommunication. So can network effects be in any way restrained in order to stop this monopolization caused by network effects? Yeah, it's sort of a mixed picture, Chuck, because definitely you can up to a point. Uh, So the classic uh, story in this case, of course, would be Microsoft, right, which got taken to court for its uh, monopolization practices, right? So uh, folks uh, uh, maybe are familiar with uh, U.S. monopoly laws, right? Uh, in the U.S., we have these uh, pro-competition anti-monopoly laws on the books called our antitrust law, named after the old era of business power when you organize them into trusts like Standard Oil, as opposed to today's modern corporations. And antitrust law, you know, theoretically, is supposed to prevent monopoly and encourage competition, even in more concentrated markets where you have just a couple of very large players. Like, again, the cell carrier market is a good example of that. Well, it, antitrust used to be enforced pretty aggressively. So we broke up Standard Oil about a century ago, and indeed AT&T. But AT&T's breakup in the very early 80s was the last time that American antitrust policy went so far as to break up a giant nationwide monopolist. Now, the most recent time they tried, of course, was in the 1990s to break up Microsoft. And I have a chapter on uh, Microsoft in the book there, sort of the original software giant. It's one of the three biggest firms uh, in the U.S. right now. It's a trillion-dollar company. And, of course, that's where where Bill Gates' feel-good foundation money comes from. We take a look. Microsoft had a classic network effects monopoly for computer operating systems. You know, So when you go to work, for the large majority of us, when you use a computer, it's going to be running lousy Windows software and all of its uh, associated suite of applications. Well, in the early 80s, Gates and uh, Microsoft had a big deal to provide the operating system for IBM's PC back when that was dominating the market. And so they gained a monopoly very quickly through the network effect. Software writers, you know, people who make games, web browsers, productivity software like Word and Excel and so on, they want to write that software for the operating system that has the biggest possible audience so they can reach the biggest market. You know, And so that meant they wrote their software to run on Windows. That suite of applications attracts more users to Windows running software like all those PCs, and you get that positive feedback self-reinforcing process. So under antitrust law, Microsoft's operating system monopoly is not like illegal. It's not legally actionable because they gained it through normal economic processes, through the network effect and the rising value for users as more and more people write more applications for that operating system. What got them in trouble was they used that operating system monopoly to take over another related industry. In this case, uh, in the mid-90s, Gates saw Netscape. Uh, the early, the very first early web browser that let you search this new internet phenomenon that was brand new at that time. Uh, the were, Gates was very jealous of its success, and so he started including Internet Explorer, uh, the lousy Microsoft browser, in their uh, Windows updates. And because those updates went on every, almost every computer other than Apple's, of course, uh, it became the huge dominant firm very quickly. That got them in court under antitrust. The Justice Department brought antitrust action against them eventually because it's not illegal to gain a monopoly through legit economics, like the network effect, but it's illegal under antitrust to use your monopoly to take over another industry. It's kind of weird. This is how pro-business American anti-monopoly laws are. Having a monopoly itself isn't necessarily illegal. Using your monopoly to monopolize another industry is where you get in trouble. And just to, another aspect of that question, though, is so you know, that antitrust case against Microsoft did succeed. And at the end of the 90s, Microsoft was adjudicated legally to be a monopolist. And that verdict still stands. That was never overturned. Unfortunately, Microsoft appealed the Justice Department's uh, victory and its plan to break up the company into an operating system, an application pair of firms. But then during their appeal, uh, the 2000 election happened. Bush comes in under disputed circumstances, shall we say, and his Justice Department dropped its pursuit of breaking up Microsoft into two firms. So we haven't really had a very aggressive antitrust policy that could take on these monopolies, uh, basically since the Reagan revolution and this whole neoliberal era. But also one last thing is it's it's not always clear 
that it's even necessarily desirable to break up these firms because after all, a lot of their value comes from connecting everyone. And so when you have a platform like Facebook, you know, a platform is a web uh, hub that's built up through a very strong and elaborated network effect. When you have sites like Facebook or YouTube, part of their value is that they're more or less monopolies. Anyone with video to post will do it on YouTube. Anyone with an event to share will do it on Facebook because that's where the users and that great online community is. So often when we look at this, and especially with the uh, recent campaigns of Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders, they're sometimes calling for breakup of these firms, but often they're starting to talk about them as utilities, like your local utility company, which have typically have their own monopolies. And so saying, maybe since the value of these firms is their sort of semi-monopoly over their market, bringing everyone together and creating this single hub for everyone to use, maybe it should be brought under public control or be tightly regulated rather than breaking up so that we don't lose the value that is created through the network effect. So there's sort of different ways to look at that. But how difficult would that be? How difficult would it uh, be to turn this private enterprise into a public utility? Because often we hear from people who say, you know, under neoliberalism, certain things have been become uh, have become privatized. To deprivatize those things is a difficult thing, even from things that were public utilities in the past. So, how difficult would it be to make things like, uh, you know, Facebook a public utility? Yeah, well, definitely extremely difficult. <laughs> uh, you know, we, if you follow uh, national events, we all know how hard it is. It's hard to get these firms to stop, even their most egregious terrible practices, let alone, you know, surrender their incredibly profitable business models to, yeah, extensive regulation or, you know, even being uh, made public property in some way uh, to make them a utility. So it'd definitely be a giant struggle. And for a number of reasons, you know, I mean, one is the obvious one. Uh, right now, those uh, big five tech firms, each one of them having a chapter in this book here, uh, they are now some of the biggest lobbying spending firms in the U.S. having surpassed traditional champions like Comcast. Uh, now Google spends, you know, sweet Google with its lovely image, spends millions of dollars lobbying Congress and the executive branch every year, and Facebook as well, and these other big firms, because they want to resist regulation. Or these days, they sort of recognize some regulation is coming one way or another, whether it comes from the Sanders wing or the Trump wing of our national conversation. And so they're trying to steer it toward more friendly, lighter touch uh, regulation. But so turning these firms into a big utility would be definitely difficult because not only do they have that big political spending, but also, I mean, I mean as you would imagine, their ideological power, their ability to shape the ideas that people are presented with is sort of the core of their models. You know, Facebook and Google, above all, on their platforms and on Google's YouTube and Facebook's Instagram, very frequently, I mean, all the time, they tweak their algorithms to uprank or downrank different things. And they always say it's based on purely technocratic algorithm-based criteria. But all the time, we have by now plenty of examples, and they're all on the record, of them making specific not necessarily political decisions, but you know, very strategic decisions about what they want to feature, what they don't want to feature. And of course, because these algorithms are completely opaque, we don't know anything about what particular features are showing up on our Facebook newsfeed and stuff. We don't really see any of this stuff going on. So if you Facebook and Google feel very threatened by these sort of political possibilities, it's very easy for them to submerge them and you know, not censor them, just make them harder to find, make them appear much further down people's feeds, you know? So pretty difficult, but then hell, you know, uh, it's pretty difficult to uh, get a semi-socialist candidate to uh, blow up across the political landscape. And of course, we're all uh, waiting with bated breath as we record this on Stupid Tuesday, but it looks like uh, Sanders is poised to do well. So it shows that even really difficult political projects, you know, uh, we can take them on. There are some possibilities there, even if it's, you know, uh, a steep climb, probably. First of all, stupid Tuesday. Good on you there, my friend. Very nice. I like that a lot. I was trying to figure out something today to call it, and I couldn't figure it out. Hey, so why now? Why suddenly have we decided we may have let these technologies and devices go too far? And what led to the popular support in breaking up AT&T? Can we repeat those same kind of circumstances to get people to believe, yeah, maybe it is time to break up Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and, and Microsoft? Yeah, so it is – you're totally right. Like the, it, it is an interesting question because, of course, 
these firms have been building up their tremendous power for, I mean, decades now. You know, even Google, like one of the youngest firms in this cadre, was founded in uh, 98, I suppose, you know, 22 years ago. And some of them, like Apple and Microsoft, are much older. They certainly did have a very long honeymoon, you know, decades where on both, you know, across the political spectrum, both parties would uh, talk about how great these firms were and they create these fun new products and there's all this innovation coming into it and we get all these great new services and many of them are free. Very easy to uh, make that, you know, a, a popular love affair. But lately, opinion really has shifted and people talk about the tech lash now uh, where people are turning against the tech firms uh, in big ways. And it is across the political spectrum. And I mean, I look at it in the book, a chapter on it, and it's sort of, you know, my impression is it does come from a couple different sources. So on the right, of course, uh, conservatives hate these tech platforms now. Uh, they're seen to have a lot of liberal workers who don't like Donald Trump and they resist his immigration orders. And uh, you know they gave money to Hillary Clinton and some of their figures, like Google's ex-CEO, worked for her campaign even. So there's antagonism on the right, that's for sure. Uh, and then also on the left, of course, people, liberals and leftists in the U.S., I think, are gradually you – know, they do have that inherent sort of skepticism of giant firms, especially if they do appear to have some kind of monopoly power. So Microsoft in the 90s was popular enough, providing us with these – fun new computer technologies you can use to do things. And as it went through its monopoly trial and all of its, because that went to trial, a lot of its emails entered the public record. And oh my God, uh, when companies go to trial, people like me get very excited. Economists who write long essays criticizing these companies, because that's when their dirty laundry and sleazy email communications come out into the open. I just had a little short article on Jacoban summarizing some of this email record just recently. Folks can take a look at that. Uh, that enters the public record, and it does move people, especially folks on the left who are a little more you know, capitalism skeptical, I guess. So it took a long time, but by now, between you know the... Facebook be allowing its platform to be manipulated in 2016, conservative anger, you know, Trump hates the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos. These firms are now so big and so widely uh, integrated into our social system as they've become more and more uh, enormously important in that system. They're starting to take some of the blame that Americans, uh, you know, uh, put onto our system for not giving us health care and having a low unemployment rate, but no one can make a living. When you become a big part of the system, you start to attract some of that blame. So across the record, uh, it definitely has come down to their diminishing popular support, which opens up a lot of political possibilities one way or another to do something about them. When Facebook and others were busted for selling personal information, the New York Times front page declared that we had all gone into an unwritten agreement, fully aware that anyone in social industry can have all our information and do with it whatever they please. In your opinion, to what extent do we know if the benefits of these devices, these services, have outweighed their cost to one of our basic freedoms alluded to in the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, the right to privacy? Yeah, well, that's pretty typical of the Times and the commercial press. You know, they will say, okay, yes, these firms have all our information, you know, Google and uh, through its Android operating system and Apple through their iPhone. They know where we go. They have that GPS technology and a ton of other uh, tech trackers that allow them to know where we go online, what we look at, and where we physically go. You know, they know when we get laid. They know everything that we do because they have so many data points on us. And the Times can say, oh, well, we knew that. This was a deal that we made. Perhaps it's a Faustian bargain that we made. Yes, mm, that makes me feel better about it. Very typical self-serving assumptions of the commercial press. I think it's fair to say that very few people, when they signed up for goofy Facebook 10 years ago, realized that they were going to be having, I mean, not just their data tracked by Facebook, but then Facebook, of course, the way it became a platform itself was by allowing all the game and application developers who started you know, uh, promoting themselves on Facebook 10 years ago, they allowed them to have wide access to all the user data. And of course, that's the whole, yeah, Cambridge analytical scandal and the data leaks. They weren't really data leaks. Like Facebook's policy was to allow these firms access to data to attract them to the platform to help build Facebook up into the fifth biggest firm in America, uh, occasionally trading places with uh, Berkshire Hathaway these days. But that, to me, is pretty unreasonable to say that we went in knowing all this stuff. People have no idea how much Google is tracking them everywhere they go on the web, including when they're not even using Google because of their ad tracking cookie software. So then the real question is exactly what you said. 
is there a point when our loss of data uh, and loss of just basic control over our personal information, is there a point where that outweighs the usefulness of these services? I mean, surely there is a point where that happens. My argument uh, that I make in the book is there's no reason to accept that trade-off, of course. you know, We could have these services with much more limited intrusions on our privacy and much a dramatically scaled back sucking up of all of our personal data. And of course, on these platforms, they would defend themselves by saying, well, we have these settings now and you can adjust how much information we collect on you and how it's used. Of course, it takes a fairly time-consuming process and a long series of clicks, confusing terms. If you try to go onto Google or Facebook you know, and manage your settings, it's not as simple as don't track me. There's a huge amount of different things you have to do. And for a lot of it, even when you're shutting off these tracking options, you're shutting off them tracking your data to serve you ads, like customized ads. They'll still collect the data. They just stop using it to pitch ads at you. There's no reason we have to accept that all of this uh, of all this data of ours will be sucked up so these firms can be trillion dollar firms especially when you consider that most of this technology from you know the modems themselves to the cell signal technology to uh, the chip materials all the way up to the internet architecture itself almost all this stuff was developed by the public sector in the 70s and 80s under DARPA and the university system when you look at it that way these firms become incredibly rich and powerful. Their owners become kid billionaires, and they know all of our dirty secrets. We paid, we and our parents' generation paid for this technology to be developed. So a lot of people now that I know personally, you know, my generation, you know, I'm Gen X and you know, millennial students of mine, they're completely resigned to the fact that our data is out there and we can never have any control over it, and we just have to accept that the firms you know, have that, and that's just the price of being online, that is completely outrageous. There is no need for us to accept that. These firms, if they're under more public control, one of the first things people are going to want to do is have easy-to-use controls over how their data is being collected. Uh, you know, Who should be in charge here? Surely the users of the platform and not the billionaire rentier monopolist sitting on top of the system. You write that uh, following the following tech platform corporate, the towering, sorry, the towering tech platform corporations and their heavily celebrated CEOs are a bunch of phony power mongering monopolist douchebags and the new <laughs> core of the global uh, ruling class. I want to thank you for using Latin in that phrase. Their power is truly incredible and the growing tech lash against them will likely fail to seriously limit their influence. They must be understood. You were, I mentioned my concerns related to voice controlled intelligent personal assistants like Amazon's Alexa to my nephew who's a freshman in college. I asked if he knew anyone who had one and because I don't know any of my friends who have one <laughs> to a person, not one. They refuse to allow that encroachment upon their privacy, especially when it is unnecessary. My nephew said every one of his friends have them in their family homes. I told him my worries that it would invade your privacy, and he said, everything invades your privacy. We have no privacy, so what's the difference? Does it make it if you also have Alexa? In your opinion, considering that kind of thinking, what is the likelihood that there will be any tech lash as users have simply normalized an acceptance that they no longer have any privacy? Yeah, that's a really good question. And when it gets into you know what will happen, will we ultimately be able to do something about these firms? I have to tell you, Chuck, these days I am ever, I am always decreasingly uh, eager to make predictions about what will happen. I look at today's global landscape, especially right now, you know, with the campaign on, people are so confident they know who's gonna who can win an election and who can't win and what policy is a winner and what isn't. People say those things. I have to ask them: Are you the person who predicted the Trump victory? You know, are you the person who predicted the Arab Spring and the finance crisis and 9/11? Because if you did, then I will listen to you. But if you look at today's environment realistically, I think you got to say there is very little that's predictable uh, about it. And today, you know, is a big day for consequences being up in the air in particular. But in general, I think we should be a little more humble about our ability to say, no, this will, you know, that'll never happen. Like, yeah, it's, you know, none of us are clairvoyant. And you know, more specifically, like looking at this struggle, like it, that's exactly right. Like what you're describing with your nephew, like that is, especially yeah, these younger folks today, there is a fair amount of resignation uh, to firms controlling our, 
uh, our information, but there's more and more resistance to this stuff than certainly I ever saw when I was your nephew's age, you know, uh, with these political campaigns that tends to be like the big organized, uh, manifestation of it. But also like, it's something that people really are concerned about when my students write term papers. So many of them write these very, you know, troubled, uh, anguished, uh, theses about how bummed out they are about how much firms know about us and can we do anything about it. I would say the political will really is there. And indeed, I mean, look at, you know, Liz Warren, whose campaign has declined and who has kind of turned to some dirtier tactics and super PAC support, sadly. Uh, but one of the things that made her for a time eclipse Sanders in the race as the progressive candidate, she differentiated herself early on by talking specifically about these platforms, breaking them up, nationalizing them, you know, portions of them perhaps, and treating them as a utility. That got her a lot of support for some time until she started waffling on Medicare for all, and then her support sort of starts to fall. But there, I think, really is, yeah, political will uh, to do something about this. It just takes people who are willing to do something like that. And now that we have some real national you know, progressive leadership like Sanders and AOC and the squad in the House, these are small beginnings, of course. But I think that there's real potential there for do, doing something. But, of course, it just takes you, know, you and me getting out there and you know, knocking on doors and canvassing and running quality left-wing media operations. I think things could definitely be done. But it is, I do, I will say, I mean, you're right. It is incredible how much people accept now, uh, like these home smart speakers, yes, um, and, you know, Amazon's Alexa and Google and Apple all have their own versions of this. Yeah, it's an always-on listening speaker in your home, and you know, supposedly it only listens when you activate it. But of course, immediately after these things were rolled out, it's business press story after story about, oh, this family discovered that their child was being listened to while not even seeing you know, the Alexa command. And, oh, look, this person accidentally ordered all these products by just having a conversation in their home. These things are listening, and we pay for them and invite them in. Uh, it's incredible. You know, in 1984, you know, written by the great socialist writer George Orwell, like the heroes are sometimes trying to escape the constant ever-present ever eyes and ears of the state and get away from it. Now we pay to bring these things into our home so some even less accountable corporation can listen. It is kind of dumbfounding. And when you visit your friends, yeah, I obviously don't have these things set up myself, but when you visit your friends whose friends, you know, who've gotten them as gifts or who are younger and bought them on their own volition, it's amazing when you're chatting, these things will occasionally pop in and say things to you, uh, especially if you have a friend named Alex and you refer to her and the machine constantly asks you what you want and you have to tell it shut up and soon you're having a personal argument with a little machine. This isn't the future that we want. <laughs> I uh, made a joke on the show about masturbating. I got home from the radio show. My girlfriend <laughs> said to me, Seriously, how many times do you masturbate a day? In the other room, the iPad went off because she said, seriously. <laughs> and it said, I do not masturbate. However, I can look up, you know, what your results are online. And it freaked me out. I had no idea that the default setting was listening to what you have to say. You write of big tech, despite this bottomless ocean of mainstream ass kissery. The reality is that big tech towers over us and has incredible influence over all our lives. Last week, we spoke with Nandini Chami, of, uh, the deputy director at IT for Change, who wrote the Roar magazine article, Data Governance and the new frontiers of resistance. Nandini writes, integrating across business lines, these companies both operate a platform and promote their own goods and services on it. This places them in direct competition with the businesses that use their infrastructure and creates a conflict of interest. For example, Amazon uses its product marketplace data to consolidate its private labels, launching high-demand products at prices that undercut third-party sellers. To what degree is the success of big, big tech from Silicon Valley, not due to innovation, but due to cheating, due to things like blatant conflicts of interest, and as you call it, playing dirty. Would Silicon Valley have had the success it has had without cheating? Oh, definitely not. Yeah, that's a really important point. Yeah, uh, it's, it, it is amazing. Like I'm telling you, hey, I have that... You know, a whole chapter in my book explaining the economics of this and the network effects leading to monopoly. It is amazing how that's never, ever enough for these greedy, bullying CEO types. Uh, it's fantastic. So, yeah, again, we, we mentioned several of these guys in the book, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, uh, Jeff Bezos, certainly, and Larry Page uh, at Google. 
if you read the very sympathetic corporate biographies written about these companies by you know, very pro-business journalists, usually who work for Bloomberg or Business Week or the Wall Street Journal, they every, they very openly discuss, because so many people want to talk about it, how bullying and aggressive these CEOs are. And they scream at their subordinates and yell at them and throw things. And you know, your employees aren't allowed to yell back, so you can just bully them. It's pretty ugly. But within the marketplace, the cheating, you know, what, we, what most people would consider cheating, you know, unfair play in the market, the amount of it is fantastic. So Microsoft itself was the first uh, big software giant to become synonymous with this behavior. When some competitor comes along that threatens some piece of a market or develops a new market that then Microsoft becomes interested in, like Netscape did. Uh, they'll often, if they can't immediately figure it out and copy the technology, they have this long record, which any business journalist will tell you about, where they approach this small new firm and say, we're maybe interested in a partnership with your firm. Perhaps we could work together. We're going to need our engineers to look at all your code. And as soon as they get this small startup or little firm to show them the code, suddenly Microsoft says, we're actually not interested in this partnership. And actually, we're developing very similar software to yours. They had a long record of doing this and a couple of court cases with mixed outcomes for it. But there's a huge history of that. Uh, Facebook with Instagram, you know, some new firm comes along that threatens your, your social media semi-monopoly. Well, just buy them. Throw a couple billion dollars at them and buy them because you'll have that kind of money because you're a monopolist. That's possible. And that's not even playing that dirty compared to Microsoft. Uh, Google, when some firm comes along uh, with a, you know, an online shopping comparison site and it's doing very well and at the top of Google's rankings, then suddenly the next day it's on page seven of the Google rankings and Google has a similar service that it puts at the top of shopping-related search results. And Amazon above all. And this, this is why its chapter is the longest in my book, sadly. It's the longest, dirtiest record. They're the kings of shamelessly copying new competitors' uh, business models, often those of tiny startups where the founders like have this sad like admiration of Bezos, and then he crushes them. It's <laughs> so, like the guys who founded diapers.com. You know, they saw themselves as following in Bezos' footsteps. And as soon as Amazon notices them, they launch their own service where they're offering diapers, and they're using algorithms to match the prices that this small startup is offering with a discount on that. And then they're even offering free shipping and then just full-on rebates, like giving shoppers five bucks just for buying diapers from them. Of course, they lose tons of money on that, but they can burn money much longer than some little startup. Once the startup goes out of business, you move your prices back up to a normal level. Like These are the sleazy competitive practices. And I have to say, if you go back to the yeah that last book of mine you mentioned the capitalism versus freedom the toll road to serfdom I look at you know the broader economy there these guys the big business CEOs they never have a may the best man win attitude which is what we economists tell our young students is the prevailing business attitude the reality is these guys see competitors as like villains to be defeated it's like an affront to them that there are competitors. So Rockefeller, to take your most classic case, you know, with Standard Oil, would just go after wildcat operators and you know offer them money and then threaten them and anything he could think of to bring them into a Standard Oil monopoly. Bill Gates today, who see, who has openly commented on the similarities between him and Rockefeller, a couple of the biographies of him describe him, you know, in meetings based on the accounts of his you know colleagues or subordinates, who would say. When he would refer to some competitor, like you know, in the '90s, like Novell and networking, or you know, uh, other spreadsheet firms, they describe him a couple of people as taking his fist, slamming it into his hand, and saying, "We've got to crush this company. We've got to crush Novell, so we can take over its market, you know, and incorporate it into our giant Borg-like corpus." So yeah, the cheating and the dirty play and the anything to crush a competitor so that I then rule the market. Like that's the real uh, business attitude. It's not this nice Darwinian. Well, it's the most efficient firm wins. Like, nah, the first firm to get a early lead and have enough cash to use dirty tricks to crush their competitors, they tend to be the ones who win. And I always like to go back again to George Orwell, who said uh, when he was uh, reviewing uh, Fred Hayek's work, very disparagingly, of course, because he was on the left. He said the problem with competitions is someone wins them. 
And I thought that was very insightful. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you also write about the abuse of labor conditions, labor conditions in the plants of Apple's contractors have become a scandal too. the most frontline picture of the company's network monopoly power. How dependent is big tech on abusing their labor? How much of big tech's success is because they abused labor? We were just discussing how they cheat in conflicts of interest in many other ways. Why the reason the question I'm, I guess I'm getting at is why does the media celebrate these CEOs when they're not inventors, they're not innovators, they're abusive, they promote conflicts of interest that they profit from. Why do you think the media shines a light, uh, such a positive light on them when in reality they're abusers who cheat? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you're completely right about that. Um, in each of these uh, chapters on each of these big five companies, I have a section on their labor record and what their workers are themselves striving to do. And yeah, these are the people who actually write the software code for Bezos and Gates to make money from, the people who produce the iPhones that Steve Jobs gets credit for. And yeah, it's a pretty hideous labor record. You know, Foxconn, uh, the big Apple contractor, has all those worker suicides on its record. And even suicide strikes where conditions are so bad on the assembly line for our iPhone 10s and stuff that the workers threaten in big numbers to all kill themselves unless they get racist. Like, that's a pretty ugly circumstance. But that's, you know, on the record. And Amazon's famous for how it horribly sweats its warehouse workers until they're exhausted and they have this huge turnover rate. So you're right. The labor history is pretty ugly. So then your question, uh, you know, why do media celebrate these firms? Well, you know, to me, it gets back to the nature of media in general. Like in the U.S. and most of the Western, most of the world, really, uh, media are commercial. You know, they're ad supported. They are trying to you know, they, don't, they don't make money when you turn on CNN tonight to watch the stupid Tuesday results. They make money then selling your attention span to advertisers who want to show you, you know, commercials for products between the uh, actual programming segments. You know, So they're not going to be super excited about Medicare for all because some of their biggest ad buyers are insurance companies, hospital chains, and the pharmaceutical industry who would all lose a lot of profitability and much of their business models under something like that. Well, the same applies to tech. You know, if you watched uh, Super Bowl a couple weeks ago, tons of ads for Amazon and Facebook on there, Google, big ad buyers. And it fits generally into the picture of the world that these, you know, fundamentally capitalist, profit-oriented, stock, stock uh, price-maintaining companies that they would want you to see of the world. You know, companies are positive. They provide products. They compete, so they're efficient. Government doesn't compete, so that's bad. They'll allow you to believe that companies came up with this tech because it gives you a unified worldview about how good markets and capitalism are. When, of course, yeah, in reality, it's all based on technology that you know we paid to develop and uh, labor standards that are pretty heinous. And, of course, for Google and Facebook, they tend not to have huge blue-collar workforces because they mostly exist online as software. But even the way they treat their white-collar workers uh, you know, when it comes down to crunch time, when they need to get a big platform change done, it's pretty ugly. So with the media gradually allowing more criticism on as the tech lash uh, grows in the midst of this unpredictable campaign, it's a good time to be organizing and, yeah, to turn people away from that media narrative. Because, yeah, you're right. It does not do us any favors in understanding the real landscape we're in. We have been speaking with economist Rob Larson, author of Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Rob was on This Is How back in June 2018 to talk about his then just published book, Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. You can hear that interview right now at thisishell.com. Follow Rob on Twitter at Ironic Professor. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Rob, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. But our, or our audience is going to hate your response. And before I ask you that question, please do me the favor of telling your very dystopian millennial students about this is hell. I think they would really appreciate it. Uh, so my question from hell for you, Rob, is what happens to us when we have us, the people who actually feel the effects of an economy? What happens to us when we have an economy based on network effects, is that economy sustainable? And is it sustainable without growing monopolization and corporate power? It could be sustainable. Like now, it clearly isn't, of course. Uh, most of these firms, you know, with their cloud services, uh, they have these gigantic, and they are breathtakingly large server farms, these gigantic racks and racks of cold stored uh, servers to keep our YouTube 
load times low and to store all of our goofy pictures of our food and so on. So you know, they consume a ton of energy and you know, uh, with Amazon's delivery empire delivering everything we buy piecemeal with one cardboard package and one truck delivery route at the time, these firms are as unsustainable as the rest of our economy is, you know, environmentally that is. And we could change that. We need a, you know, a green power grid. This is why a lot of us on the left for years have been pushing for some form of a green new deal to change these things over. If we, you know, we have plenty of potential green energy, if we would invest in it, instead of giving tens of billions of dollars just to public money to the oil industry every year, we could make it sustainable. Like that is utterly within the question. Other countries that are like us, you know, like Germany, a very middle class, predominantly white country, you know, fundamentally similar to the U.S., half their energy now is from renewables. We could have done that if we cared at all. So it could be sustainable, but it's just going to take more of that political muscle. But in the meantime, yeah, you know, we are stuck with carbon burning uh, monopolists that control our information system. So uh, a lot to fight back against. Here in hell. <laughs> Rob, always great talking to you. I'm going to be bugging you to get you back on the show when you uh, have new articles at Jacobin in the future. Thank you so much for being on our show again. It really is a pleasure hearing from, hearing from you. My pleasure, Chuck. Thanks. Big fan. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. We're not going to be able to get to listener feedback, but I just got to tell you real quick, we got a great email from somebody about my rant yesterday on MSNBC and James Carville. We got an email from somebody who lives in the capital, Bentonville, Billionairesburgville, as he calls it, Arkansas, the capital of Walmart, and he reports to us what's happening down there, and it is insane. Let me just tell you that the word Clagon, as in a member of the KKK, comes up in that email, and we also got an email from somebody who wants to help out the radio show. I'm going to share those, all of those with you tomorrow. This week's question from hell is, what does this startup that you're pitching us do? What does this startup do? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins the book we just discussed, Rob Larson's Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Alex, do you have any of uh, the answers, uh, any answers to this week's question from hell yet? Oh, yeah, we got a bunch. This week's question from hell is, uh, so what does this startup do? What does this startup do? Chuck W. says, synergistically forecasts trends in an anticipatory way. <laughs> Jesus. There's going to be a lot of ones like this. Zach oh N. God. says, here at CLL LLC, we intersect the Framus with the Ramistan approximately at the per- Paternoster. Why do I have a feeling that a lot of these people work in this industry? Stephen S. says, Bitcoin indulgences. <laughs> I think I know who that is. Jacob H. says, reinvent the wheel, but uh, for use only by those who make above six figures yearly. Was that Jacob who appears on here every so often? Jacob, no, no, no. Okay. Different Jacob H. Right. Uh, Wally R. says, unpacks concepts and then repurposes them into assist- securitized debt that can be accessed by a hello cool app at the locally sourced muffin shop. And leverage into Bitcoin before the muffin shop goes out of business because none of these MFers buy anything while sucking up all the free Wi-Fi bandwidth. <laughs> That's pretty spectacular, right? Anthony S. says, have a meeting before the meeting about the meeting to implement what was covered at the meeting in review. <laughs> what does this startup do? What does this startup do? Fabio L. says, re-engage human power and machine knowledge dynamics to create synergistic opportunities in the app ecosphere of the growth mind frame. <laughs> That's a huge mistake. You don't want to do that. Uh, Mark C. says, imminentize the eschaton. What does this? I'd have to look that up. What does, what does this uh, startup do? What does this startup do? Joshua J says that's not a startup. That's Joe Biden's PR firm. <laughs> Benjamin C says it takes change to make change. Timothy C says nothing of value to society. That's for sure. Bradley R says it uses techno utopian pseudoscience to build gullible billionaires out of their wealth. Lisa MP says, feels really good about itself. <laughs> That's pretty spectacular. What does this startup do? Adam A says, that San Francisco sidewalk defecation app is going global, baby. <laughs> Snap crap Uber Alice. <laughs> Shane M says, who farted? Well, now we have an app for that. Hoof arted. Oh, jeez, Shane. Report him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Greg M says, weaponizes the intersectionality of white and privileged. <laughs> 
Uh, Martin B says, utilize machine learning to ascertain where the homeless sleep and subsequently <laughs> implement AI-powered spikes to poke them at the moment they begin to drift off into slumber. Whoa. And finally, Nick E., the frontrunner for Alex's favorite, at least, is it's a right-wing evangelical Christian data mining company that searches for potential voters by cross-referencing interests in hunting, NASCAR, pro-life, small government, white supremacy, and Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I still haven't had Chick-fil-A. Have you had Chick-fil-A? Ever? No. Damn, Chuck. I really want to. Is it any good for fast food? Uh, yeah, all fast food is good. <laughs> no, it is not. I, you really? Last time, when was the last time you went to uh, White Castle? Have you had their shrimp burger yet? <laughs> I'm going to start playing that Elizabeth Warren clip. <laughs> Wait, shrimp burger? Yeah. Oh, I'll give it a try. Really? I'm not above shrimp burgers, man. <laughs> Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour streaming show beginning at 10 a.m. in the morning Chicago time, just like today's show. Elena Levine will be on to talk about her book, Her Stories. Uh, on soap operas and U.S. television history. Really, I'm really, really excited for this one. I watched General Hospital when I was really sick for like 10 days. That, and then I never wanted to watch a soap opera again. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to hear the rest of this week's questions from, or answers to this week's question from Alex, some more of them at least. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Rob Larson, at, who is our guest today. Your eyewitness to grief, especially on this. Stupid, stupid Tuesday. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>